0: Hello, I'm Rod Moffat, the librarian here at the Hastings Highlands Public Library in Maynooth, Ontario. I am with two of our best performers from the Opiongo Readers Theatre, Leslie Heisert and Anne Wilde, and together we hope to offer you some inspiring Christmas classics, along with some other works that, if they are not yet classics, soon might be. It's a show full of fun and frolic and good Christmas cheer but it's also about what we come to believe as children and how we learn to understand the not so rational world around us. But enough analysis. Let's just begin at the beginning and face that old chestnut that all parents face when their children come home to them after hearing something in the schoolyard from one of their closest, most trusted friends who tell them, Santa Claus? Why, That's just a big fat fib your parents make up to get you to go to bed early on Christmas Eve. There's no Santa Claus. That's fake news. And how do we answer little Donald or Donelda when they assert that horrific line about Santa Claus being fake news? How do we deal with those children in tears, wanting to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Santa Claus? Easy. We just tell them that what Francis P. Church told Little Virginia. On September 21st, 1897, the New York Sun published what has become the most widely read letter ever written to a newspaper. It was sent by eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon, who lived with her parents in Manhattan. Here is the full text of that letter and the reply by Sun editorial writer Francis Farsalis Church.
1: Dear Editor, some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it is so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant. In his intellect as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus. You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus. But even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not, but that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders there are unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No, Santa Claus. Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia? Nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad
0: the heart of childhood. Now that we've got that cleared up, it's time to clear up another misconception that Santa only reads mail that children write to him, but that he never, well, has the time or good sense to write back. Not true as you will hear in this registered letter once sent by Santa Claus. It was received Christmas morning, 1875, by one Susie Clemens, the three-year-old daughter of Samuel Clemens, who, for some unknown reason, went under the obscure name of Mark Twain, possibly a distant relative of Shania Twain, perhaps. Well, no matter, here's the letter from the jolly old elf in his own marvellous handwriting. Christmas morning, Palace of Saint Nicholas, in the moon. My dear Susie Clemens, I have received and read all the letters which you and your little sister have written me. I can read your and your baby sister's jagged and fantastic marks without any trouble at all. But I had trouble with those letters which you dictated through your mother and the nurses, for I am a foreigner and cannot read English writing well. You will find that I made no mistakes about the things which you and the baby ordered in your own letters. I went down your chimney at midnight when you were asleep and delivered them all myself and kissed both of you too. But there were one or two small orders which I could not fill because we ran out of stock. There was a word or two in your mama's letter which I took to be a trunk full of dolls' clothes. Is that it? I will call at your kitchen door about nine o'clock this morning to inquire. But I must not see anybody, and I must not speak to anybody but you. When the kitchen doorbell rings, George must be blindfolded and sent to the door. You must tell George he must walk on tiptoe and not speak. Otherwise, he will die some day. Then you must go up to the nursery and stand on a chair or the nurse's bed and put your ear to the speaking tube that leads down to the kitchen and when i whistle through it you must speak in the tube and say welcome santa claus then i will ask whether it was a trunk you ordered or not if you say it was i shall ask you what color you want the trunk to be and then You must tell me every single thing in detail which you want the trunk to contain. Then when I say goodbye and a Merry Christmas to my little Susie Clemens, you must say goodbye good old Santa Claus. I thank you very much. Then you must go down into the library and make George close all the doors that open into the main hall. And everybody must keep still for a little while. I will go to the moon "'and get those things, and in a few minutes "'I will come down the chimney that belongs to the fireplace that is in the hall. "'If it is a trunk you want, "'because I couldn't get such a thing as a trunk down the nursery chimney, you know. "'If I should leave any snow in the hall, "'you must tell George to sweep it into the fireplace, "'for I haven't time to do such things. "'George must not use a broom, but a rag, "'else he will die some day.' If my boot should leave a stain on the marble, George must not wholly stone it away. Leave it there always in memory of my visit. And whenever you look at it, or show it to anybody, you must let it remind you to be a good little girl. Whenever you are naughty, and someone points to that mark which your good old Santa Claus's boot made on the marble, what will you say, little sweetheart? So... You can see it is not always Santa's fault if we don't always get what we want Christmas morning. It's sometimes not possible for Santa, or even the rest of us mere mortals, to figure out who really wants what, what with kids and especially adults getting involved at Christmas time. Take, for instance, the following story involving two people who truly did love each other and who only wanted to make each other's Christmas wish come true. It's a classic Christmas tale. A short story written by O. Henry and simply called The Gift of the Magi.
2: One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. She had put it aside, one cent and then another and then another, in her careful buying of meat and other food. Della counted it three times, one dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas there was nothing to do but fall on the bed and cry so Della did it. While the lady of the home is slowly growing quieter we can look at the home furnished rooms at a cost of eight dollars a week there is little more to say about it in the hall below was a letter box too small to hold a letter there was an electric bell but it could not make a sound also there was a name beside the door Mr. James Dillingham Young. When the name was placed there, Mr. James Dillingham Young was being paid $30 a week. Now, when he was being paid only $20 a week, the name seemed too long and important. It should perhaps have been Mr. James D. Young. But when Mr. James Dillingham Young entered the furnished rooms, his name became very short indeed. Mrs. James Dillingham Young put her arms warmly about him and called him Jim. You have already met her. She is Della. Della finished her crying and cleaned the marks of it from her face. She stood by the window and looked out with no interest. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only one dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a gift She had put it aside as much as she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week is not much. Everything had cost more than she had expected. It always happened like that. Only one dollar and eighty-seven cents to buy a gift for Jim, her Jim. She had had many happy hours, planning something nice for him, something nearly good enough, something almost worth the honor of belonging to Jim. There was a looking glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you've seen the kind of looking glass that is placed in eight dollar furnished rooms. It was very narrow. A person could see only a little of himself at a time. However, if he was very thin and moved very quickly, he might be able to get a good view of himself. Della, being quite thin, had mastered this art. Suddenly, she turned from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brightly, but her face had lost its color. Quickly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its complete length. The James Dillingham Youngs were very proud of two things which they owned. One thing was Jim's gold watch. It had once belonged to his father, and long ago it had belonged to his father's father. The other thing was Della's hair. If a queen had lived in the rooms near theirs, Della would have washed and dried her hair where the queen could see it. Della knew her hair was more beautiful than any queen's jewels and gifts. If a king lived in the same house with all his riches, Jim would have looked at his watch every time they met. Jim knew that no king had anything so valuable. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, shining like a falling stream of shimmering water. It reached below her knee. It almost made itself into a dress for her. And then she put it up on her head again, nervously and quickly. Once she stopped for a moment and stood still while a tear or two ran down her face. She put on her old brown coat. With the bright light still in her eyes, she moved quickly out the door and down to the street. Where she stopped, the sign said, Mrs. Sonfroni, hair articles of all kinds. Up to the second floor, Della ran and stopped to get her breath. Mrs. Sonfroni, large, too white, cold-eyed, looked at her.
1: "'Will you buy my hair?' "'I buy
2: hair,' said Mrs. Sainferny. "'Take your hat off and let me look at it.' Down fell the blonde waterfall. Twenty dollars,' said Mrs. Sainferny, "'lifting the hair to feel its weight. "'Give it to me, quick!' "'Oh, and the next two hours seemed to fly. "'She was going from one shop to another "'to find a gift for Jim. "'She found it at last.' It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the shops and she had looked in every shop in the city. It was a gold watch chain, very simply made. Its value was in its rich and pure material. Because it was so plain and simple, she knew that it was very valuable. All good things are like this. It was good enough for the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that Jim must have it. It was like him, quietness and value. Jim and the chain both had quietness and value. She paid $21 for it, and she hurried home with the chain and the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim could look at his watch and learn the time anywhere he might be. Though the watch was so fine, it had never had a fine chain. He sometimes took it out and looked at it only when no one could see him do it. When Della arrived home, her mind quieted a little. She began to think more reasonably She started to try to cover the sad marks of what she had done. Love and large-hearted giving, when added together, can leave deep marks. It is never easy to cover these marks, dear friends. Never easy. Within forty minutes, her head looked a little better. With her short hair, she looked wonderfully like a schoolboy. She stood at the looking-glass for a long
1: time. If Jim doesn't kill me before he looks at me a second time, he'll say I look like a girl who sings and dances for money. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven,
2: Jim's dinner was ready for him. Jim was never late. Della held the watch chain in her hand and sat near the door where he always entered. Then she heard his step in the hall, and her face lost color for a moment she often said little prayers quietly about simple everyday things. Please God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in. He looked very thin and he was not smiling. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two and with a family to take care of. He needed a new coat and had nothing to cover his cold hands. Jim stopped inside the door. He was as quiet as a hunting dog when it is near a bird his eyes looked strangely at Della and there was an expression in them that she could not understand it filled her with fear it was not anger nor surprise nor anything she had been ready for he simply looked at her with that strange expression on his face Della
1: went to him Jim dear don't don't look at me like that I had my hair cut off and sold it. I couldn't live through Christmas without giving you a gift. My hair will grow again. You won't care, will you? My hair grows very fast. It's Christmas, Jim. Let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you.
0: You've cut off your hair?
1: He
2: seemed to labor to understand what had happened. He seemed not to feel sure
1: he knew. Cut it off and sold it. Don't you like me now? I'm me, Jim. I'm the same without my hair. Jim looked around the room.
0: You say your hair is gone?
1: You don't have to look for it. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. It's the night before Christmas, boy. Be good to me, because I sold it for you. Maybe the hairs of my head could be counted, but no one could ever count my love for you. Shall we eat dinner, Jim? Jim put his arms
2: around his Della. For 10 seconds, let us look in another direction. Eight dollars a week or a million dollars a year. How different are they? Someone may give you an answer, but it will be wrong. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. My meaning will be explained soon. From inside the coat, Jim took something tied in paper. He threw it upon the table.
0: I want you to understand me, Nothing like a haircut could make me love you any less. But if you'll open that, you may know what I felt when I came in.
2: White fingers pulled off the paper, and then a cry of joy, and then a change to tears. For there lay the combs. The combs that Della had seen in a shop window and loved for a long time. Beautiful combs with jewels, perfect for her beautiful hair she had known they cost too much for her to buy them she had looked at them without the least hope of owning them and now they were hers but her hair was gone but she held them to her heart and at last was able to look up and say my hair grows so fast Jim and then she jumped up and cried oh oh Jim had not yet seen his beautiful gift She held it out to him in her open hand. The gold seemed to shine softly
1: as if with her own warm and loving spirit. Isn't it perfect, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at your watch a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how they look together. Jim
2: sat down and smiled.
0: Della, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use now. I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs, and now I think we should have our dinner. The Magi,
2: as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the newborn Christ child. They were the first to give Christmas gifts. Being wise, their gifts were doubtless wise ones. And here I have told you the story of two children who were not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing he owned in order to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts, these two were the most wise. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are, the most wise. Everywhere, they are the wise ones. They are the magi
0: the truth is Christmas isn't really about what we get or even what we give each other it's really about a very special feeling a way of oh I don't know being inspired to become better than we often are during those few blessed days during our Christmas holidays and it's not always just a warm and fuzzy feeling sometimes it's magically strange at least that's how it seemed to Dylan Thomas as he relives his memory of a child's Christmas in Wales.
1: One Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the Seatown corner now, out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep that I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases roll down towards the two-tongued sea like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the firemen. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden, waiting for cats with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, is white as Lapland, although there were no reindeers. But there were cats, patient, cold and callous, her hands wrapped in socks. We waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars, and horrible whiskered, spitting and snarling, they would slide and sidle over the white backed garden walls. And the lynx eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur capped and moccasined trappers from Hudson's Bay off Mumble's Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her ingloo at the bottom of the garden. Or, if we heard it at all, it was, to us, like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. "'Fire!' cried Mrs. Prothero, and she beat the dinner gong, and we ran down the garden with the snowballs in our arms towards the house and smoke, indeed, was pouring out of the dining room, and the gong was bombolating, and Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats and whales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house, laden with snowballs, and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero, who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face, But he was standing in the middle of the room saying a fine christmas and smacking at the smoke with a slipper call the fire brigade cried mrs prothero as she beat the gong they won't be here said mr prothero it's christmas but there was no fire to be seen only clouds of smoke and mr prothero standing in the middle of them waving his slipper as though he were conducting do something he said and so we all threw all our snowballs into the smoke i think we missed mr prothero and ran out of the house to the telephone box let's call the police as well jim said and the ambulance and ernie jenkins he likes fires but we only called the fire brigade and soon the fire engine came and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house and mr prothero got out just in time before they turned it on nobody could have had a noisier christmas eve And when the firemen turned off the hose and were standing in the wet smoky room jim's aunt miss prothero came downstairs and peered in at them jim and i waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them she said the right thing always she looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets standing among the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs and she said would you like anything to read years and years ago when i was a boy when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased, with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback. It snowed and it snowed, but here a small boy says, "'It snowed last year, too. "'I made a snowman, and my brother knocked it down, "'and I knocked my brother down, and then we had tea.' "'But that was not the same snow,' I say. "'Our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky. "'It came shawling out of the ground and swam "'and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. "'Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses, "'like a pure and grandfather moss.' minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman, opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then, too? With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses on spread, frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat ta 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 and the doors rang? I mean that the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells too. Inside them? No, 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 in the bat-black, snow-white belfries, tugged by bishops and storks. And they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window and the weathercock's crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath, and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents? And then the presents after the Christmas box. And the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithered run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his ice bound boots like a man on fishmonger slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God, he was gone get back to the presents. There were the useful presents, engulfing mufflers of the old coach days and mittens made for giant sloths, zebra scarves of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-of-war down to the galoshes, blinding tam-shanters like patchwork tea cozies and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes. From ants who always wore wool next to the skin, there were moustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the ants had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nose bag from an ant, now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And pictureless books in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles's pond and did and drowned. And books that told me everything about the wasp except why. Go on to the useless presents. Bags of moist and many-colored jelly babies, and a folded flag, and a false nose, and a tram conductor's cap, and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell. Never a catapult, once by a mistake that no one could explain, a little hatchet, and a celluloid duck that made, when you pressed it, a most unduck like sound, a mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow, and a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the sea, and the animals any colour I please. And still the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow-billed and pea-green birds. hard Hardboils, toffee, fudge, and all sorts, crunches, cracknell, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan, and butter Welsh for the Welsh. And troops of bright tin soldiers who, if they could not fight, Could always run, and snakes and families and happy ladders, and easy hobby games for little engineers, complete with instructions. Oh, easy for Leonardo! And a whistle to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick to shake our picture off the wall. And a packet of cigarettes. You put one in your mouth, and you stood at the corner of the street, and you waited for hours in vain. For an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette, and then with a smirk you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles like in our house? There were always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. And on Christmas mornings, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scour the swathed town for the news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the post office or the white deserted swings, perhaps a robin all but one of his fires out. Men and women wading, scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-bust cheeks, all albinos huddled their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all the front parlors. There was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackers by the desert spoons and cats in their furabouts watched the fires and the high-heaped fire spat all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers some few large men sat in the front parlors without their collars uncles almost certainly trying their new cigars holding them out judiciously at arm's length returning them to their mouths coughing then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion And some few small ants, not wanted in the kitchen, nor anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man always, fawn-bowlered, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back, as he would take it wet or fire on Christmas Day or Doomsday, sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats and wind-blown scarfs, would trudge, unspeaking, down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I would be slap-dashing home, The gravy smell of the dinner of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mince coiling up to my nostrils when out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy, the spit of myself, with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfrench, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound, and would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas when suddenly he with a violet wink put his whistle to his lips and blew so stridently so high so exquisitely loud that gobbling faces their cheek bulged with goose would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street for dinner we had turkey and blazing pudding and after dinner the uncles sat in front of the fire "'loosened all buttons, put their large, moist hands over their watch-chains, "'groaned a little, and slept. "'Mothers, aunts, and sisters, scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. "'Aunt Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. "'The dog was sick. "'Auntie Dozie had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah, who liked port, stood in the middle of the snow-bound backyard, singing like a big bush thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and then when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man o' war following the instructions for little engineers, and produce what might be mistaken for a sea-going tram car. Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking, into the white world, onto the seaward hill, to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think there have been hippos. What would you do if you saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this. Bang! I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill and then I'd tickle him under the ear and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing he-hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow towards us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn or we walked on the white shore can the fishes see it's snowing the silent one clouded heavens drifted on to the sea now we were snow-blind travelers lost on the northern hills and vast dew-lapped dogs with flasks round their necks ambled and shambled up to us baying, excelsior We returned home through the poor streets, where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow, and catcalled after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of ships out in the whirling bay. And then, at tea, the recovered uncles would be jolly, and the ice cake loomed in the center of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum, because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts wooed like owls in the long nights when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once, when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. At the end of a long road was a drive that led to a large house, and we stumbled up in the darkness of the drive that night each one of us afraid, each one holding a stone in his hand in case, and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises as of old and unpleasant and maybe web footed men wheezing in caves. We reached the black bulk of the house. What shall we give them? Hark the herald? No, Jack said. Good King Wenceslas, I'll count three. One, two three and we began to sing our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow felted darkness round the house that was occupied by nobody we knew we stood close together near the dark door good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen and then a small dry voice like the voice of someone who has not spoken for a long time joined our singing a small dry eggshell voice from the other side of the door a small dry voice through the keyhole and when we stopped running we were outside our house the front room was lovely balloons floated under the hot water bottle gulping gas everything was good again and shone over the town perhaps it was a ghost Jim said perhaps it was trolls Dan said who was always reading let's go in and see if there's any jelly left Jack said and we did that always on Christmas night there was music. An uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang Cherry Ripe, and another uncle sang Drake's Drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got up to the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest, and then everybody laughed again, and then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-coloured snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill, and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down, I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept.
0: Not far from where Dylan Thomas grew up enjoying Christmas as a child in Wales, Kenneth Graham grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland. He's the famous author of The Wind and the Willows, one of the great classics of children's literature. But Graham also had some interesting things to say about Christmas. Here's his poem called Carol. Villagers all this frosty tide, let your doors swing open wide. Though wind may follow and snow beside, yet draw us in by your fire to bide. Joy shall be yours in the morning. Here we stand in the cold and the sleet, blowing fingers and stamping feet, come from far away you to greet, you by the fire and we in the street, bidding you joy in the morning. For ere one half of the night was gone, sudden, a star has led us on, Raining bliss and benison, a to Bliss tomorrow and more anon, Joy for every morning. Good man Joseph toiled through the snow, Saw the star or a stable low, Mary she might not further go, Welcome thatch and litter below, Joy was hers in the morning. And then they heard the angels tell, who were the first to cry Noel. Animals all as it befell in the stable where they did dwell. Joy shall be theirs in the morning. One of the great symbols of the holiday season is the humble Christmas tree. And whether it's a balsam fir, scotch pine, blue spruce, or any other evergreen, Christmas trees have long inspired poets like Robert Frost. Here is his Christmas tree
2: the city had withdrawn into itself and left at last the country to the country when between whirls of snow not come to lie and whirls of foliage not yet laid there drove a stranger to our yard who looked the city yet did in country fashion in that there he sat and waited till he drew us out a buttoning coach to ask him who he was He proved to be the city, come again to look for something it had left behind, and could not do without and keep its Christmas. He asked if I would sell my Christmas trees, my woods, the young fir balsams like a place where houses all are churches and have spires. I hadn't thought of them as Christmas trees, I doubt if I was tempted for a moment, To sell them off their feet to go in cars And leave the slope behind the house all bare Where the sun shines now No warmer than the moon I'd hate to have them know it if I was Yet more I'd hate to hold my trees Except as others hold theirs or refuse for them Beyond the time of profitable growth The trial by market everything must come to I dallied so much with the thought of selling "'Then whether from mistaken courtesy "'and fear of seeming short of speech "'or whether from hope of hearing good of what was mine, "'I said, there aren't enough to be worth while. "'I'd soon tell how many they would cut. "'You let me look them over.' "'You could look, but don't expect I'm going to let you have them. "'Pasture they spring in, some in clumps too close, "'that lop each other of boughs.' but not a few, quite solitary and having equal bows, all round and round. The latter, he nodded, yes to, or paused to say, beneath some lovelier one, with a buyer's moderation, that would do. I thought so, too, but wasn't there to say so. We climbed the pasture on the south, crossed over, and came down on the north. He said, a thousand. A thousand Christmas trees at what a piece! He felt some need of softening that to me. A thousand trees would come to thirty dollars. Then I was certain I had never meant to let him have them. Never show surprise. But thirty dollars seemed so small beside the extent of pasture I should strip. Three cents, for that was all they figured out a piece three cents so small beside the dollar friends I should be writing to within the hour would pay in cities for good trees like those regular vestry trees whole Sunday schools could hang enough on to pick off enough a thousand Christmas trees I didn't know I had worth three cents more to give away than sell as may be shown by a simple calculation Too bad, I couldn't lay one in a letter. I can't help wishing I could send you one in wishing you, herewith, a Merry Christmas.
0: Another American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wasn't so taken by Christmas trees as he was by another symbol of the season. Here's one of his best-known poems, Christmas Bells, written in 1863 at the height of the American Civil War
1: heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men.
0: Longfellow is famous for another great Christmas poem written years after the Civil War ended, and celebrating three kings. Three kings came riding from far away, Melchior and Gaspar and Balthazar. Three wise men out of the east were they, and they travelled by night, and they slept by day, for their guide was a beautiful, wonderful star. The star was so beautiful, large and clear, that all the other stars of the sky became a white mist in the atmosphere. And by this they knew that the coming was near of the prince foretold in the prophecy. Three caskets they bore on their saddle bows, three caskets of gold with golden keys. Their robes were of crimson silk with rows of bells and pomegranates and furbelows, their turbans like blossoming almond trees. And so the three kings rode into the west through the dusk of night over hill and dell. And sometimes they nodded with beard on breast and sometimes talked as they paused to rest with the people they met at some wayside well. Of the child that is born, said Balthasar, good people, I pray you, tell us the news. For we in the east have seen his star and have ridden fast and have ridden far to find and worship the king of the Jews. And the people answered, you ask in vain. We know of no king but Herod the Great. They thought the wise men were men insane as they spurred their horses across the plain like riders in haste and who cannot wait. And when they came to Jerusalem, Herod the Great, who had heard this thing, sent for the wise men and questioned them and said, Go down unto Bethlehem and bring me tidings of this new king. So they rode away and the stars stood still the only one in the grey of morn. Yes, it stopped, it stood still of its own free will, right over Bethlehem on the hill, the city of David where Christ was born. And the three kings rode through the gate and the guard, through the silent street till their horses turned and neighed as they entered the great inn-yard. But the windows were closed and the doors were barred, and only a light in the stable burned. And cradled there in the scented hay, in the air made sweet by the breath of kine, the little child in the manger lay, the child that would be king one day, of a kingdom not human, but divine. His mother Mary of Nazareth sat watching beside his place of rest, watching the even flow of his breath, for the joy of life and the terror of death were mingled together in her breast. They laid their offerings at his feet, the gold was their tribute to a king, the frankincense with its odor sweet was for the priest, the paraclete, the myrrh for the body's burying. And the mother wondered and bowed her head and sat as still as a statue of stone. Her heart was troubled yet comforted, remembering what the angel had said of an endless reign and of David's throne. Then the kings rode out of the city gate with a clatter of hoofs in proud array. But they went not back to Herod the Great, for they knew his malice and feared his hate and return to their homes by another way. Whatever Christmas may mean to folks like Longfellow who lived back in the 19th century, some of us sometimes can feel that the modern world has turned Christmas into something far less noble. Christmas TV commercials especially sometimes remind us of how much the world has traveled from those literary sentiments of great writers of the past but sometimes, even television, surprises us. Take December 9th, 1965, when a certain TV network premiered for the very first time in prime time, a feature-length cartoon. It was a TV special about a very confused and nearly bald little boy named Charlie Brown. He had a devil of a time understanding the modern world around him, especially during Christmas. That is, until his good friend Linus explained it all in a few simple, heartfelt words.
2: I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree, said Charlie Brown. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I don't really know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? "'Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about,' said Linus. "'Lights, please.' And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people.' For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men.
0: Well, that about does it for us here today in the Hastings Highlands Public Library. We hope you enjoyed our offering from Maynooth and we hope you remember in the coming weeks the true meaning of Christmas. Our show was performed by Leslie Heisert, Ann Wilde, and myself. It was written and produced by Barry Conway. For the Opiongo Readers Theatre, I am Rod Moffat. We would all like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.